The text from the scriptures that I want to reflect upon with you today is one of those passages from the Bible that is among the most disturbing and confusing texts in all of the scriptures. Uh, it is not the kind of message that I would normally want to be preaching on if somebody was just visiting the church for the first time. So my apologies if that's you. It is not the kind of passage that I would normally want to be reading uh, in the presence of, of little children who lack perhaps the background and the context to appreciate what we're going to talk about. It definitely is not on my top 10 list of texts to use for couples devotionals, but it will no doubt spark some conversation in the couples in our church family, uh, I'm sure. The reason is because at first glance, at the, the start of, of Acts chapter 5, we seem to meet a, a portrait of God, a picture of God as a greedy, vengeful, demanding deity instead of as the generous, gracious, loving being that Jesus shows us God truly is. And yet sometimes I think we need to, to be shaken by the scriptures. We need to meet something in the nature or the working of God that, that moves us out of our comfortable complacency. We need to be disturbed sometimes by a larger picture of God's passions in order that we be transformed by those passions and enter into the larger life that God has for us. And I think that if you will sit with this story with me today, you will find that God is providing here a striking object lesson, a disturbing object lesson whose aim is actually not to discourage us, but to lead us from death into a greater kind of life. So listen, if you would, this morning, as I read from the Word of God in Acts chapter 5 at verse 1. Now a man named Ananias, together with his wife Sapphira, also sold a piece of property. Now the word also is our first cue to the wider context of the lesson that we're studying here today. There's an antecedent to this story, as we studied, I think, two weeks ago now, uh, when we looked at Acts chapter 4, the life of the early Christian church was a remarkably communitarian one. It was a remarkably uh, interpenetrating, integrated, interdependent kind of life. For from the time that, that Jewish children were very, very young, the disciples as Jewish people would have heard the words of the very famous psalm that we read earlier in our worship service, that the earth is the Lord's and that everything in it, the world and all who live in it, belong to God. And, and so each Jewish child would grow up on the practice of tithing, of acknowledging God's ultimate ownership of all things by giving a tenth of the, of the produce of their lives for the worship and the work of God's temple. Then these disciples that are following after Jesus get to watch as the Lord himself, the one who made everything and owned everything and was, in a sense, owed everything, gave up everything himself, voluntarily giving up his entire life upon a cross for the sake of others, 
And something switched for these disciples, for these Jewish men and women who had been following after Jesus. They began to realize that generosity wasn't merely an isolated act that you perform to satisfy God's rules. That generosity was actually God's entire way of life. Generosity was God's modus operandi. And the more you knew God, they began to realize, the more you were inclined to be like God in this way. You began to see everything that you were and everything that you have as a grace that can flow out to help others. And this vision of life began to grow in, in the person of those first disciples. So these early Christians had developed a practice, a regular communal practice of voluntarily making their resources available to one another to meet each other's needs. And so we read in Acts chapter 4, I reprised this from two weeks ago, God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all that there were no needy persons among them. For from time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them. They brought the money from the sales. They put it all at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone who had need. And the witness of this remarkable, countercultural, amazing kind of availability to God's purposes, this extraordinary generosity, this abundance mentality, in a sense, the witness of this kind of life resulted in turning the heads of the consumer individualistic culture of the Roman people of that particular day. And we read that thousands of those outsiders asked to be welcomed in to the inside of the life of the early church. Now, this is the crucial context. This is the important background for the particular property sale that gets described in Acts chapter 5 and verse 1. But it's also where the story gets a little bit more complicated. Because we're told, and I quote, with his wife's full knowledge, always good, I've learned as a husband to have the wife's full knowledge, with his wife's full knowledge, Ananias kept back part of the money for himself, but brought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. Now, on the surface of things, this doesn't seem to be too much of a problem, does it? At first glance here, it's really hard to see why this should be any kind of issue. I mean, nowhere in the Old or the New Testaments are we ever told that we have to be totally generous. Uh, I've never seen that text anywhere there. I mean, God, if you read the scriptures, seems pretty pleased with the Israelites when they are committing a whole tenth of their resources to his explicit purposes. And then in Luke's gospel, Jesus seems overwhelmingly pleased with Zacchaeus when he commits half of his capacity to the purposes of God's kingdom. So who is going to find fault in Ananias or Sapphira 
if they hold back some of the proceeds of the sale of the property for themselves. I mean, who's going to have a problem with that? Well, apparently somebody. As the text goes on to describe. Then Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart and mind that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some of the money you received for the land? Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money implying all of the money at your disposal, what made you think of doing such a thing? You have not lied just to human beings, but to God. And when Ananias heard this, he fell down and died. And great fear seized all who heard what had happened. Then some young men came forward, and they wrapped up his body, and they carried him out and buried him. About three hours later, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. Peter asked her, tell me, is this, meaning what had been given, is this the price that you and Ananias got for the land? Yes, she said. That is the price. Again, implying that she and her husband were giving everything they'd gotten for that land. Peter said to her, how could you conspire to test the spirit of the Lord? Listen, the feet of the men who buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out also. And at that moment, she fell down at his feet and died. And then the young man came in and finding her dead, carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. Well, yeah, you bet great fear seized the entire church and everybody who heard it. Are you telling me that if the offering plate comes around and I'm not all in there, there's this chance that a lightning bolt comes down from the sky and the ushers have to carry me out this morning? Is that possible? Thank you, I think I'll start watching on live stream. <laughs> or does it work that way with the whole click and give thing too? Wow, this is a really scary and disturbing text. I mean, this is an upsetting story because God knows apparently everything that I have in all of the various pockets of my life. He knows what I'm currently putting at his feet for his kingdom's work and what I am keeping for my own purposes. Is it possible that God is as demanding and dangerous as this story seems to imply? Did God zap Ananias and Sapphira in order to terrorize you and me into giving more 
And if God is that harsh, who's going to want to be a Christian? In fact, as this story went out on social media in the first century, how did anybody ever want to come and be part of the church? And yet the story is that thousands and thousands more flooded into the life of the church. Please hear me very clearly on this because this very important passage is frequently misunderstood. This is not a sermon on the amount. This is not a sermon on the, a story in the Bible about the amount that any of us give. This is a story about the attitude that we bring. It's not about what we do with our treasure specifically. It's about what we do with the truth. It's about what we do with the truth and how open we are to God's truth. Truth matters a great deal to God. I am the way, the truth, and the life, says Jesus. And what got Ananias and Sapphira in such trouble, in fact, what moved God, I believe, to make their lives an early object lesson, a a point, not a pattern. God doesn't do this any other time in the New Testament that I can see. but what God moves God to do something so striking as this it, it is the lying pattern that exists in the life of Ananias and Sapphira. Peter says to Ananias, you have not lied just to human beings, but to God. And later he says to Sapphira, you conspire to test the Spirit of the Lord, which is to say you are conspiring to find out whether even God even has any clue about what you've actually done or not done and whether God is going to do anything about the fact that you are lying about what you've done. And of course, it turns out that God does know and does act. As a family went to church one Sunday, a mother gave her child a $1 bill and a quarter. She said, sweetheart, I'm giving you both of these things, and you can put either one into the plate this morning. You make the choice for yourself. And as they're driving home, the mother, who is very curious, decides to ask her daughter what she actually did. And the little girl said, well, at first she said, I was going to give the dollar. But then I heard the pastor say, that God loves a cheerful giver. So I felt like I would be a lot more cheerful if I just gave the quarter (laughs) and kept the dollar. That's at least being truthful. That's not pretending. As Jesus observed in his famous parable of the house builders, you can at least make improvements over time, reliable improvements when you're building on the bedrock of truth, of reality, when you're acknowledging reality. That little girl might well, over time, be able to move from that place to, to an even larger, a more expansive kind of generosity in her life if she was building at least on the bedrock of truth. But not if she got comfortable lying about her generosity. There was not likely to be a 
a great discipleship future for that little girl if she got very at ease with pretending to be generous when she was not actually being so generous. Uh, Not if she dropped in the quarter, pocketed the dollar, and told herself, I've done really well. That, I think, is the challenging message of this story. I think it's the one big takeaway. This is not a complicated message that we're reading here in the Scriptures. God leaves a singed spot, in effect, on the floor of Acts to make sure that we understand how crucial it is that we, as the followers of Jesus Christ, build our lives on the truth and live in the truth. For centuries, I know, people have debated what constitutes the famous sin against the Holy Spirit. The one sin that Jesus says is unforgivable or unpardonable. There's been a lot of debate about this through the years. Here's my take on it. The unforgivable sin is, is the act of shutting yourself off from truth. It, it's the act of choosing to accept a lie as the way of one's life. It's denying God the ability to shine his light into our life contenting ourselves completely with who we are now, with the way we do things now, because once you are so smugly self-assured as to be content with your perfectly sealed faithfulness, there's no reaching you. There's no way the grace of God can even lead you to the repentance that leads you to forgiveness. One of the small steps that we take in our lives, one of the perilous steps that we take in our lives, not the only one or the only way, but one of the incremental steps we take in the direction of this shutting down is this tendency to measure our faithfulness by what we put out there for God or for others instead of by what we hold back. We, we measure our righteousness by our acts of commission and not by our acts of omission. In our family life, it works this way sometimes. In our work life, we do this. In our church life and elsewhere, we want to be evaluated, many of us. I can speak for myself. I resonate. I understand this impulse. We want to be evaluated mainly by what we've put there, out there on the table or at the feet of Jesus or others. Look at me, I did the dishes or made the dinner. Instead of all those things, I did not do. I was not in for. I was not supplying. Uh, Look at me, I got the assignment done or I pleased the client. Look at me, I showed up at practice or I did the drills. Look how faithful I've been. But what we don't face truthfully is what we've kept in our pocket. What we actually haven't invested in the way of love, in in the way of forgiveness or of servanthood or of communication or of some other resource that we had control of 
that was ours to give that could have made a difference but we kept to ourselves. No circle of human community, again, family, workplace, church, team, society, nation, world, no circle of human community ever reaches its potential until its members make the shift from the good enough mentality to the what else do I have to offer mindset. It's in truthfully examining what's in our pockets that breakthroughs to flourishing finally come. The truth that the Bible underlines is that God owns all. He gives all. He asks for our willingness to make available all for his purposes. He doesn't take it all. He doesn't demand it all. He invites us to be part of his glorious purposes. And if I get stuck in this kind of good enough mindset, uh, instead of the what else, Lord, do you, have you given me the capacity to bring, uh, I have really shut down his ability to lead me in the way everlasting. And, and, and again, I remind you, this isn't just true of finances. This is true in our family life. This is true in the other important partnerships of our life. I, I can think of seasons in my life where, where the breakthrough it, that was needed in my marriage or in my engagement with my kids was, was a breakdown of that good enough mentality that I was so comfortable in and, and a movement towards a greater spirit of generosity and engagement than I had been willing to give. Well, the early Christians, somehow they had the breakthrough. They, they got this at some level. They, they had left their nets and followed after Jesus. They had made their time and their talent and their treasure completely available to him. And I think that as long as any of us continue to think that being a disciple is about loaning God a little bit of our resources or tipping him a percentage for his service to our kingdoms, we are living a lie. This isn't discipleship. It's, it's merely religion. Most religions are about pacifying some God with some sort of nominal gift, and discipleship is about living one's whole life for the God who is the source of it all anyway. That's the difference between religion and a relationship with God. And this take root adventure that we've been on over the past year has been, in a sense, a test of our discipleship. At least it's felt like a, a stress test for me and, and, and for Amy, perhaps for you too. For some of us, the number that we put on that commitment card a year ago was the greatest step of faith that we have ever taken. And, and, and it was a challenge that has stretched us every step of the way. And we're just praying for the capacity to be able to finish strong on that commitment. For some others of us, it wasn't really that. Uh, our commitment might have been a little bit more like Ananias and Sapphira's commitment. It, it was substantially less, actually, than what 
our uh, finances or capacities could have made possible if we were truly um, engaged. And God, I think, over this past year has maybe been stirring some of us. Uh, not, not out of fear of the lightning bolt, but out of a growing sense of faith in him. And God has been asking some of us, maybe he's challenging some of us even as I speak right now, to, to think about what we have actually in our pocket that could make a profound difference in the lives of other people. And so when we turn in our commitment card next week, there's going to actually be a new number on it. There's going to be a number that better reflects what our real capacity is to bring flourishing into the lives of others and to find flourishing not just for others but also in deeper measure for ourselves. I think in this regard of the story of a wealthy older gentleman who called into his office a contractor with whom he'd been doing business for many, many years. And the rich man handed the contractor a check for an enormous amount of money. I want you to take this money, he says, and I want you to use it to build for me a dream house. I want you to use only the very best materials, the very finest craftsmanship you can hire. Spare no expense. Make this house, house something truly wonderful. And the contractor left the office of the man fingering the check, and he began to think to himself, you know, if I take this money and I'm clever with it, I can make out very nicely on this deal. And so that is just what he did. He built the foundation and the walls of the home with cheap materials, but he covered them with veneers that made them look very fine. Within the walls, he installed plumbing and electrical wiring that was shoddy at best, but outside he installed fixtures that looked expensive and very well made, some of which were not at all very well made. He cut corners on insulation and roofing materials and everywhere else that would not be noticed by the eye of the rich man to long after the rich man could no longer look when he was dead. And the tidy sum that the contractor was able to skim aside he pocketed. Well, the day came when the wealthy man came to take delivery of the house, and when he saw the great mansion, he beamed with joy, and he thanked the contractor profusely. It looks like everything I had hoped for, he said, and that is especially good news, for you see, you have served me so long and so well. This house is actually a gift for you. This is my gift to you. The call to generosity, to stewardship of our capacities, our trusted gifts for the purposes of the kingdom of God is something God actually does for us. Every day, you and I are building a house 
of one kind or another, with every block of generosity, every stroke of grace, we are constructing an eternal character in which we have to live. We are constructing a certain kind of church. We are building a certain receptacle for the values and vision of our children. We're, we're building a, a particular kind of world. And so the question, the most important question is, what kind of a house do we want it to be? Really, truthfully, what kind of a house will it be? So, so here are some things that I think we can do to help us with this. One, we can take an inventory of what we have made available, the quality of what we've made available to the purposes of God. We can look at that list of things and, and ask ourselves, are we giving God the best we have? Secondly, we can make a list of what's in our pockets still. What we're holding back. Out of lack of faith, maybe, or out of selfishness, or out of some other motive. And number three, we can move something from list number two to list number one. We can move something from the pocket to the purposes of God. Remember, we don't have to get things perfectly. If you know the heart of Jesus, the God he shows us, he is not Scrooge. He is not some celestial miser. Uh, Jesus came into the world, he said, not to be its judge, but to be its savior. We don't have to get things perfectly, but we don't have forever to start setting things right. As the early church discovered on the day that they buried Ananias and Sapphira, sometimes it's only when we're staring death in the face that the beauty and the goodness of really, truthfully living for God with the fullness of our being becomes truly and personally clear. And that expansion of heart, that, that, that growth of vision uh, to have a life that really makes an even larger difference than we'd imagined. Well, that breakthrough of vision happened for a couple in our church over these last several months, and I want to let you hear their story in the hope that it will challenge and encourage and inspire all of us as well. Let's watch together. My name is Brian Runwick, and this is my best buddy. <laughs> His wife, Barbara Renwick. I think Brian and I kind of lost our way when the kids were grown. We stopped going to church for a while. And I think when Take Root came to us, uh, we looked at each other as an opportunity for a new beginning for us. I think the night of the meeting, there were tears and a lot of emotion for Brian and I as to how we were going to go forward with the rest of our life and, and where we had been and, and what we wanted to start new in our life. 
we view Take Root as a, a way for us, Barb and I, to, to have a new beginning with, with God, to make a new commitment to Him personally. So that was very important to us. And we prayed about it, been very healing to us and also strengthening, I think you could say, to us too. We started coming back to church at that point, and shortly after we started our journey back, we found out that Brian was really sick, was diagnosed with uh, stage four pancreatic cancer. We went to Scottsdale, and I received treatment. It's a journey that has taken us in some really beautiful places in our life. And it's kind of like when Jesus went into the desert for 40 days and and we got to Scottsdale and each treatment cycle is approximately 40, 40 days long and uh, we're in the desert. I'm 64 years old and I have struggled with being more open and in relationships. I have asked him to change my heart, to be more open, to be more giving, to be more what he is all these years. And he's doing that for me. It's beautiful. You can't go back. You, you know that he is absolutely in you, in your heart, and changing it. I can do nothing apart from him. People can't change. Only through Jesus Christ you can change. One of the things I've tried to do is challenge myself to be more humble, to be wise, and, and, and to be more understanding. And I spent many years judging people. Recently, I've tried to be more understanding. We're all God's children, and I've tried to be less judgmental. It has been so rewarding to have this relationship now that we have praying together and this walk together um, has brought us so close to Jesus Christ, to each other, and to our families and to the world that it's just overwhelming to me that this could happen through this journey. I also realized that I wanted to do more for God. I wanted to do more to try to grow his kingdom. And I thought one thing I can do is increase our take root commitment. And so that was very important to Barb and I. We're expanding the facilities. Uh, we want to expand the congregation. I, I see so many people who need God and who are looking for him. And I want Christ Church of Oakbrook to be a welcoming place that Barb and I are involved in because again, it's all about growing Christianity here in Oak Brook, here in Illinois, here in the United States, and, and here in the world, the live stream sermons. It's very important that those continue because the message coming from Christ Church is very powerful and those sermons are, are excellent. And the more people who can be exposed to that, uh, the more Christians we're gonna have in the world. And to me, that's very important. I'm not sure how much time I have left and I want to do more while I'm here. And so it was never about doing less with my commitment. It was always in my mind about doing more. He won't ask anything of you that he doesn't think that you can fulfill. And if you can't fulfill it, 
you know, ask him about that. And, and I think he will respond in some form or, or way. He will tell you uh, what you need to do. And that's, I think, the most important thing you can do is to pray to God about your commitment and what you want to do with it. You have to do what God is calling you to do today. It is all His anyway. Right.